Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1. The fellows have Bibles for you to follow along. So get their attention if you need a Bible. As they make their way back down the aisle, they'll get one to you. Marked at Hebrews 1. So you can follow along. As we look at the first three verses this morning of that opening chapter of a marvelous book. Have you ever found yourself just out of place? You're in a place that you're not familiar with and you perhaps even shouldn't be. You just don't quite fit. Perhaps you wandered in by accident. Perhaps you tried to get in and then realized I shouldn't be here. That's happened to me a number of times. So I'll give some examples from my own life. I'm sure these kinds of things have never happened to any of you. I was in the Philadelphia airport a few years ago, very tired, and uh, needed to use the facilities at the airport. And so I just wandered into the large openings that they have at airports for restrooms. And when I wandered in, I looked around for the usual equipment. (laughs) And it wasn't there. And I perked up very quickly because I realized I was in the the wrong room. Fortunately, I was the only one in there, and I beat a hasty retreat. As I was coming out, someone who I didn't know says to me, boy, did you make a mistake. (laughs) Well, thanks, buddy. Sometimes you're just disoriented. Sometimes it's just not right. Sometimes it just doesn't fit. And you feel that. We were on vacation a couple of weeks ago. We were driving home many hours the last day. We made that a drive day. But we also stopped a number of places along the way home. And we were just coming out of New York. We were going to have to do a few hours through Pennsylvania, a few hours through Ohio. And it was about 730 and it was a late dinner for us. We wanted to have one last thing we were going to do that would be special. Let's look for a special place to have dinner. But it was getting late. We were getting hungry. So we were just going to have to settle for a McDonald's if we didn't find something pretty quick. We were going through this little town in New York. And we passed this place with white pillars called the White Inn. And it was a majestic-looking place. Turns out it was a restaurant. We decided we would go in. And so we all piled out of the van in which we'd been traveling for about 10 hours. And I had about three days worth of growth on my face. And it didn't dawn on me that I had shorts on. You say, really? (laughs) That's true, but only on vacation. And so I go wandering in to get us a seat. And it hits me before I ask this guy who comes out with a tuxedo on that perhaps we don't fit. He was happy to seat us outside. And we had dinner outside. And we loved it. But you had that feeling, you know, we're just a bit out of place. We just don't fit. One final story. Well, as many of you know that before I got into full-time ministry, I spent 20 years in computer consulting. And you go from place to place, and you try to help folks with their computer problems. And sometimes the problems are things you haven't encountered 
And so you have to become fairly adept at thinking on the fly and doing the best you can. I have a book on my shelf called The Secrets of Consulting. And one of the chapters in that book, here's the title, How to Be a Consultant When You Don't Know What You're Doing, which came in handy for me many times. Because you would go in and you just felt like you were out of your element. This is beyond me. And when we're out of place and when we're out of context, we are also a bit out of sorts because nothing seems to fit right. There's something not right about this. It's a disorienting experience. And the truth of the matter is most people live their lives out of context, disoriented, out of sorts. And the reason they do that is because we were all made, every last one of us, for relationship with our Creator. And yet we live life with a sort of what I call practical atheism. We say we believe in God, but we rarely acknowledge Him as central to everything we do in our lives. And as a result, things are disoriented. They don't quite fit. They don't quite make sense. And the author of Hebrews understood that. And because he understood that, he starts with God in order to place what he's going to say in the chapters that follow in their proper context. Notice the first phrase of chapter 1 of verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. He begins with God. The fourth word in the English translation begins with God to set things in context. And he's going to mention no less than 68 times throughout this book. That's an average of once every 73 words in the book of Hebrews. God is going to be mentioned. Why? Because God's the context. God's the context of what he's going to say. And we're going to see what he says a bit today and in the weeks to follow. But we need to understand from the outset, God's the context. And Scripture teaches that throughout, does it not? How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does John say in the very first verse of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the Bible teaches that God is absolutely essential. God is absolutely necessary. Every moment of every day for every endeavor that we undertake. And if we do not acknowledge that, if we do not realize that, then it doesn't fit. It's messed up. It's out of context. It's disorienting. I want us to see, first of all, that God is absolutely necessary. I have that for you in the outline that you should have received inserted in your bullet. And God is absolutely necessary for everything, including life itself. Do you realize, friend, that you would not be sitting here alive and breathing if it were not for God? That God is necessary for life itself. Now, we have very otherwise intelligent people who are still foolish in their view of where they came from and on whom they are dependent who try very sophisticated ways to deny that most fundamental truth that we are dependent upon God 
for life itself. God is essential, necessary for life. There is a law of science called biogenesis. Some of you are familiar with it. Simply this. Life only comes from life. Genesis, origin, source, bio, life, biogenesis. Life has its source in life. And the truth is, for every observation that has ever been made, there has never been one contradiction to that law of biogenesis. Life comes from life. And yet you have people who try to deny that. Otherwise intelligent people. Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog because he was such an advocate of Darwin's notion of the origin of the species, evolution. And he said this, if it were given me to look beyond the abyss of geologically recorded time to the still more remote period when the earth was passing through physical and chemical conditions, which it can no more see again than a man can recall his infancy. Now, it's fancy terminology. He's just saying, if I could go back to when it all happens, he says this, I should expect to be a witness of the evolution of living protoplasm from non-living matter. Now, why does he believe that? Not because he's ever observed it. No one ever has. Just because the contrary can't be true. That life comes from life, and there, therefore, must be a source of life from which all natural life has come. And that source of life is none other than God himself. In the beginning, God created, and God is absolutely essential, necessary, for physical life. And so the Bible says this. The Father, God, has life in himself. You see, friends, there must be. As you do your infinite regression, you get to a point where there must be someone who has life in himself and thus can, can give life. And the Father has life in himself. There are many, many proofs for the existence of God. Some of you are familiar with the fancy terms that go with those, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. That is, the cosmos, the world, shows design, and that points to a designer. Or the ontological argument for the existence of God, or the teleological argument for the existence of God. My favorite one, though, really, is the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And what does, what does that mean? It proves God by showing the impossibility of the contrary. The truth is that without God, you can't do anything. Without God, you can't even endeavor to try to prove that God doesn't exist. Did you all know that? I've seen people try. I witnessed a debate several years ago in video of an atheist against a Christian. And as they were debating, the atheist announced very proudly that he was going to prove that God does not exist by using the laws of logic. And during the question and answer time, the Christian asked him, he said, tell me, where do these laws of logic come from? And his atheist friend simply could not answer. You see, you can't even use logic to disprove God because without God there is no such thing as the laws of logic. The impossibility of the contrary. Man depends on God. He's necessary. He's essential for physical life, for our ability to think at all. And that's why the scriptures tell us, for in him we live. And in Him we move. And in Him we have 
our very being. God is essential, absolutely necessary for life, for the ability to think, for ethics, for what's right and what's wrong. Dostoevsky said this in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. He said, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And isn't that true when you think about it? Friends, we're living in a world of people who, in decreasing numbers, say they believe in God. And even many of those who say they believe in God are what I called earlier practical atheists. God is essential, necessary for physical life, for the ability to think, for a determination of what is right and wrong, for an understanding of purpose in life so that you don't simply float through life from one thing to the next, not knowing why I'm here, for what purpose. And so Solomon, who wrote the marvelous book of Ecclesiastes, says, I looked under the sun. And he uses that phrase over and over. I looked under the sun. And under the sun, from the perspective that's self-contained and earthbound, not from a Godward perspective, just earthbound, I saw that all of life is what he called, and here's his phrase, chasing after the wind. It's like trying to grab with your hand a wisp of smoke. It goes right through. You can't get your arms around it. God is necessary for purpose, for meaning. And that's why Solomon said meaningless, meaningless in Ecclesiastes. All is meaningless. God is necessary for satisfaction in what you do. Without a purpose, without knowing why I'm here, And the reason for which I do what I do, how can I find real, ultimate satisfaction in the effort? Nothing makes sense apart from the context of the God who made us and who placed us here for his purpose. And the problem for people outside of Christ particularly is that man does not want to live with God. But the truth is he cannot live without God. God is the context of our physical existence. He is our creator. He's the context of my work. He's the owner. He's the context of my relationships. He's the father. He's the context of my trials. Because he is sovereign. God is absolutely essential. Would you all agree? Absolutely necessary. That's why the writer starts in the past God, to set everything that he's going to say in the pages that follow in their proper context. We absolutely require relationship with God in order to make sense out of life. Thankfully, God has not left us to grope in the darkness. God knows that we need him. And despite our obstinance, and despite our unwillingness so often to hear what he has to say, God pursues us and this God speaks because the first line of our text, Hebrews 1.1, in the past, God spoke. But then goes on to say, in these last days, he continues to speak. He's spoken to us by his son. This God pursues us and gives us what we need to know about him, the one who is necessary and absolutely essential. And that's why I say in your outline, God is not just necessary in general. Notice, 
God is necessary for understanding. It's necessary for God to speak. It's necessary for God to reveal, make known, for God to talk, for God to tell us if we're going to know who we are, who he is, what he's got us here for. We can't figure it out by going to him. He must come to us. Think of it this way. I've seen some of these movies with my girls, like A Bug's Life or The Bee Movie. And if you're familiar with those, you know they're about you know, insects or animals who are trying to figure humans out. And so it's comical as they observe humans and they talk about humanity and they try to figure out what humans are about, what makes them tick. The truth is they don't understand humans and they can't. We'd need to have the capacity to communicate with them. They'd have to have the capacity to receive it. They don't, we don't. Hear this. God has the capacity to communicate. And he made us with the capacity to receive what he says. In the past, God spoke. And God speaks through his son. With God and humanity, both the willingness to communicate and the ability to receive that communication exists. And so the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And I want you to note that it is God who spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. The hero of the story, the writer of Hebrews knows, is not the prophets through whom he spoke. It's the God who spoke through them. It was God speaking through the prophets. And notice that even though there are dozens of quotations and allusions to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, in this book that we're going to study over the next few weeks called Hebrews, dozens of quotations and allusions to that first part of your Bible that were written by numerous human authors. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, not one of those human authors is ever named. And I think I know why. Because the writer of Hebrews wanted us to understand that it's not the human author ultimately. It's God who spoke. And it is God who has spoken through his son. He wants us to know that It is God who spoke, and it is the same God now who speaks. The human author is just the instrument. It's helpful sometimes, indeed, to know who the human author of a particular book of the Bible is, just so you can know the situation, the background. But we always have to be reminded, first and foremost, it is God who is speaking in the Bible. That's why at the very end of this book, chapter 12, will you hold your finger at chapter 1, and just turn back to chapter 12, second to the last chapter, as the writer of Hebrews is closing out his argument. He issues this warning. He started with speaking. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And then in between, he tells us all about his son. He tells us all about, and we're going to see how marvelous he is. But he issues a warning in chapter 12 and verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him 
who speaks. God has spoken with finality in Jesus. And you cannot refuse them. The one who has spoken for your good. That's one reason that, just as a quick aside, I try to avoid mentioning the human author very often when I make reference to a passage. I don't know if you all have noticed that. But I try to avoid saying Paul says. I simply say God says or the Bible says. One, because sometimes those I'm talking to don't know who Paul is or who Amos is or any of those people, and I don't want to throw you off. And the truth of the matter is, everything that's in the Bible, though penned by human authors, comes to us from the God who inspired them. The writer of Hebrews says, God spoke in the past to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the contrasts between the way God spoke through the prophets in the past and his speaking through the son are several. Let me note some of those for you. There were many prophets There's only one son. The prophets knew what they did because they had been appointed to a particular office by God to speak on his behalf. They had an official position and they were instructed by God. But Jesus knows what he knows and reveals what he reveals, not by having been commissioned, but by virtue of his relationship as the eternal son with the eternal father. Illustrate it this way. An executive can have a secretary in a company. And if he has that same secretary for many years, he or she will get to know the executive quite well. His tendencies, his likes and his dislikes. But the executive's son will reflect his nature, will reflect his character. One commentator said it this way, a son carries in himself the Father's nature and does not need to be instructed in purposes which are also and already his own, nor to be officially commissioned and empowered to do what he cannot help doing. And that's why the Bible says of Jesus, in contrast to the other prophets that had gone before, God the one and only who is at the Father's side has truly made him known. Why? Because he has the very nature of the Father, the one that he has come to make known and reveal. Revelation that God gave to the prophets was what I call predictive, and it was anticipatory. It was anticipating things that would come. It pointed to someone future and someone greater. But God's revelation in Jesus is final. And it is the fulfillment of all that those prophets pointed to. There is no revelation greater than Jesus. And friends, there will be no revelation beyond him. It's all centered on him. Even the last book of the Bible, after Jesus has come the first time, done his work on earth, gone back to the Father in heaven, will return in the future. Even the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, It starts out this way, the very first phrase. The book of Revelation is the revelation of who? The revelation of Jesus Christ. This fact that it is this one God who spoke in the past and now who speaks through his son shows the unity 
of the Bible. It is the same God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews says that God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and then he says, at various times and in many ways. Different times, many times, various ways. You know that your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, was composed over about a 1,600-year period? It was not given all at one time. The truth is, Job probably lived before Moses. And Moses gave us the first five books of the Old Testament. David and Solomon wrote after Moses. Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel wrote after them. God spoke at many times, and he spoke in various ways. As you read through your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, you have God revealing himself through dreams. And so we find in Genesis 20, God came in a dream one night and said to Abimelech, Or you find God revealing himself through visions. And so Isaiah starts his book with this phrase, the vision that Isaiah saw. And then in chapter 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying. And so God would reveal himself through visions. Now, by the way, when I show you this verse then, tell me what this means. In the King James Version, it says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. We've seen what a vision is in the Old Testament. It was a means by which God revealed himself, made himself known. It was not like politicians and leaders like to say, in effect, I'm the man with a plan. People need a vision, a plan to move forward. Al Gore actually quoted that verse at the 92 Democratic Convention, and he used it that way. Politicians and leaders do it all the time. What do you think that means? That when a leader doesn't have a plan to move forward, then it's bad for his followers? Well, that's probably the case. That's not what that verse means. Vision in the Old Testament was one of the various ways that God revealed himself. And so, here's how the NIV rightly translates that. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. They have no clue what to do. Because God has not instructed us. He's not made it known through one of the means by which he makes it known. Sometimes through a vision. Sometimes through special messengers. Throughout the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you will find this phrase, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord came and said to him or her or them. Or sometimes you just find God addressing an individual directly. The Lord said to Moses or the Lord said to Joshua. And that was the way it was in the past. But in these last days, God has spoken by his son. Friends, it points to the finality, the absolute completeness of God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. And the question then arises, what gives him, what gives the son the right to be the spokesman for God, to be God's final revelation. You see, because the Bible does not just, and the author of Hebrews does not just say, God is the context. It all starts with God. It all comes back to God. If you don't see God in relationship to yourself and everything in your life, then it's disoriented and confusing. 
It's all true, but he doesn't leave it at that because it's not just any God. It's a particular God. It's the God revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what the writer of Hebrews says about that one in this opening passage in just a moment. But there's a warning for us here, friends. Understand that everybody can talk about a generic God. And we can say we believe in God. But the Bible reveals, and the writer of Hebrews concurs, there is but one God, and He is made known in none other than Jesus Christ. And so we're not about just generic God talk. It's about the one in whom God has revealed himself, Jesus. Speaking of generic God talk, this is a real aside, but as a pastor, I feel like I should say this. Friends, don't use God's name in vain. I hear Christian people say, and I just say this for purposes of instruction, because I don't say this. Oh, my God. Say, wow. Say anything, but don't use God's name in vain. And when you text, you know, say wow instead of OMG. That stands for, oh my God. I'm told. We're not about generic God talk, but when we mention the name of God, let us do so, giving it the sacred reverence that it deserves. But it's not just generic God talk. It's a specific God revealed in history in none other than Jesus of Nazareth. I mentioned Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 a bit ago. Put it on the screen. In him we live and in him we move and in him we have our very being. You know what's interesting about that to me? Is that's actually a quotation from a pagan philosopher recorded in the Bible. Epimenides lived at about 600 B.C. And he's actually the one who first said, in him we live, and in him we move, and in him we have our being. And Paul used it at Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, to show these pagan philosophers, you know that he is essential, you know that he is necessary, You know that he's required for all things, and yet you deny the very revelation of himself that he has provided in his son. And he now, Paul says, Acts chapter 17, calls all men everywhere to repent because Jesus is the one that he's appointed to be heir of all things. So it's not just generic God talk. Not just any God. It's God the Son. And I had for you earlier, John chapter 5, that the Father has life in himself. But on the screen, you see that that passage actually goes on further. And he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And so the writer of Hebrews now goes on to tell us about this one who has been appointed by God to be his spokesman, God the Son now. A revelation that no other prophet before him or no other prophet after him will ever be able to replicate. They were all prophets who spoke about God, and he is the God about whom they spoke. So what gives him the right to speak? 
The writer of Hebrews gives us seven characteristics, seven marvelous characteristics of Jesus Christ that give him this right to speak. He's qualified to speak because he is the son. That is, he has the very nature of God. He is God. And because of that, these seven things can be said of him. Notice what is said. God the Father appointed God the Son to be heir of all things. And being an heir requires a family relationship. Because he's the unique Son, God the Son, all that belongs to God belongs to him. Now you consider this. All that belongs to God belongs to Jesus because he is God. He's heir of all things. Consider this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says this. That because we are God's children, we are co-heirs with Christ. All things belong to him. And Jesus, in effect, says, because I've adopted you into my family, if you can take this in. Because I've adopted you into my family, all that is mine is yours. And secondly, of this one who is God's spokesman, it is said by the writer of Hebrews that through the Son, God the Father made the universe. Literally, the phrase made the universe is made the ages. That is, it's a reference not to matter but to time. He is the Lord of history and all that transpires in history. And so that's what qualifies him to be God's final spokesman. He's Lord of what's going on in your life. That's why we sing no power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Jesus controls, we sing, my destiny. The writer of Hebrews says, thirdly, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That is, Jesus possesses the holy, perfect, brilliant character of God that shines with blinding light. When he walked the earth, it was veiled in his humanity. We have an occasion in Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Bible tells us Jesus was transfigured before them. They couldn't look. The Bible tells us, that in the heavenly city, there will be no need of the sun. Because the lamb will be the light of the city. Everything belongs to Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord of history. And he possesses the pure brilliance of the holy character of God. And then fourthly, we're told, in verse 3, that he's the exact representation of his being. That is, he exactly represents who God is because he is in fact God. In this phrase, exact representation, it's a translation of one Greek word. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. Listen to the word. Character. One time in the New Testament, right here, we get our word character from it. And originally it meant an instrument for engraving, and then it came to mean a mark stamped on that instrument. It came to be used generally of a mark stamped on anything, the impress of a die. It was used of the impression, the image on coins. And so one translation says this, he bears the very stamp of his nature. A fifth thing is said about the son, the one who is the final spokesman of God. 
It says he sustains all things in verse 2 by his powerful word. Excuse me, verse 3. And the word sustaining doesn't mean that Jesus is carrying the world on his shoulders like Atlas. The word sustaining literally means carrying along. That is, Jesus is seeing to it. He's making sure that all things make it to their appointed end. He's ensuring that all things turn out as he said. And they will because he has said it. Because his word is powerful. And if he declares something will come to pass, friend, it will come to pass. Remember, this is the God who spoke the worlds into existence. And when he speaks, it's absolutely sure. It's not passive text. It's the active, powerful word of the living God, as we will see in chapter 4 and verse 12. And the last two of these seven things that are said about the Son, the final spokesman of God, have to do with what he did when he came to earth and what he is doing now. And it tells us now what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us throughout the rest of the book. God is not only necessary, In general, God is not only necessary for us to understand, thus he must speak, he must reveal. But God is absolutely necessary for us to have a relationship with him at all. God is necessary if we're going to have a relationship with God. The sixth of the seven things said about Jesus is this. He provided purification for sins. Thanks be to God. You say, is there purgatory in the Bible? Yes, right here. He purged our sins. He provided purification for our sins. He did that with his work when he came to earth nearly 2,000 years ago. He pronounced it absolutely complete when on the cross he said, it is finished. The writer of Hebrews is now going to explain that for several chapters. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see that marvelous work of Jesus Christ. And he says over and over again, Jesus died once for all. It's finished. He purged. He purified our sins. Why? So that we could have relationship with him. And a relationship with God is absolutely necessary for everything. And God is necessary for us to have that relationship. Here's what I mean by that. God has to initiate it if we're going to have it. Just like God has to initiate the revelation because we can't do it ourselves. God is the one who must initiate the relationship if we're going to have it. But thanks be to God, he's done that in Jesus. Jesus has come. He has provided purification for our sins. The work is done. And that's why the seventh thing is absolutely crucial and true. After he did this, notice what verse 3 says. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, of the majesty in heaven, the writer tells us. You see, friends, the most important relationship you have is the relationship you have with God.
the theme then of the book of Hebrews that we're going to see over the next few weeks is found in chapter 10. We just turned to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Having set the context now for the entire book, it's about God. The context is God. Without God, everything's messed up. And what we desperately need is a relationship with God that he must initiate. He's done that through his son. And now from chapter 2 on, he's going to explain how that happened, how Jesus provided this purification for our sins so that we who were estranged from God can have a relationship with God. After he does that, here's the theme of this entire work. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? Because of the one who provided purification. Because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's what we should do. Let us draw near to God. With a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And so our series over the next several weeks through these themes in Hebrews is that very thing, draw near to God. Why can I draw near to God? Uh, Because he's initiated it through the Son. He's made it possible through his work on the cross of Calvary. And he's made it possible for you, friend, to have a relationship with him. You do not need to grope around. You do not need to search for a Savior in any other place because there is none other than the final word from God who is Jesus Christ. He purified your sins. But you must receive the gift that He offered. We're going to bow in just a moment. But how do you do that? You realize who you are, who I am, sinners. We've broken God's law. We're estranged. We do not come into this world with a relationship with God. But Jesus has come to mend that. He's done what's necessary for you to be adopted into his family. And so I recognize what Christ did on the cross by paying the penalty for my sin. I repent of my sin. You are the Lord of history. You are the exact representation of God. You are God the Son. And so I bow my heart and my life before you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Repent of your sin. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. But I invite you, friend, to receive this one, God's final revelation, described in these opening words of this marvelous book of Hebrews. By praying as we bow, in your own words from your heart to God, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner, and I recognize Jesus Christ is the only way for me to have relationship with the true and living God. I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life. And he promises to forgive you and restore the relationship that has been broken by sin. Let's bow together. Our God. We come before you reverently. We come before you humbly. We come before you gratefully. Lord, we revere you because you are the awesome God that made all things, who needs nothing, dependent on no one or no thing, 
And yet your very nature is to make yourself known. And we are the beneficiaries of you having made yourself known. And so, Lord, we revere you. And we're humbled before you because we know we don't deserve this. It's only in your mercy and your grace. But we gratefully receive what you have done by speaking in your word and speaking through the revelation that comes to us in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that every person here will heed your solemn warning to make sure we listen to the one who speaks, who's been authorized to speak, who speaks perfectly in who he is and what he has said and through those he has authorized because he has relationship with the true and living God. Why? Because he is God. And so help us to listen to him. Help us to learn at his feet. And help us, Lord, never to ignore what he says. Thank you, Lord God, for loving us. And we love you because you have. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.